Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. The A-10 Thunderbolt, or Warthog, or simply Hog, has developed a cult following in recent years. There are web pages and Twitter accounts devoted to this unusual-looking aircraft and dedicated to ensuring the program is not terminated before an adequate replacement is ready to be fielded. It earned this dedicated following throughout decades of service. Hundreds of thousands of ground troops have witnessed its awesome power in action. A quick search of YouTube reveals dozens of videos created by soldiers and Marines in Iraq and Afghanistan with titles like A-10 Saves the Day and A-10 Warthog, The Hand of God. While troops today appreciate the capabilities of the, of the aircraft, many might not know the story of how it came to be. This really was a jet that few in the Air Force wanted to build in the first place, and many have worked hard to cancel the program time and again throughout the years. The A-10 only came about as a result of a series of fortuitous events and the hard work of a core group of brave individuals dedicated to creating the most effective ground attack aircraft ever. The story of how the aircraft was created serves as a shining example of how weapon systems should be designed and purchased. This began with the marching orders given to the team before they began their work. Pierre Spray, one of McNamara's famous whiz kids, served as part of this remarkable group, and he has an interesting story to tell. The A-10 story really starts with a guy named Colonel Avery Kay, who was a highly decorated bombardier, sorry, uh, highly decorated navigator from World War II who led the raid on Schweinfurt, probably one of the most dangerous uh, and famous bombing raids of World War II. Because he was a very gifted navigator and because he was the guy who pioneered training uh, jet bomber crews uh, on low-level navigation, probably the hardest navigation task there is. Uh, Because he was so good at that, he was promoted regularly and found himself... uh, in the air staff in a little group that was advising the chief of staff on basically how to protect the air force against raids from the army and the navy and how to do the same to them i'm talking about budget raids money and uh but avery avery was probably one of the most ethical officers i've ever met i mean to an extraordinary extent and When he had gotten into the Pentagon, one of his tasks was to draft an agreement between the Air Force and the Navy. It was the culmination of a long series of agreements and negotiations called the Red Leaf Agreements, which were to divvy up kind of aircraft roles and missions between the Army and the Navy, and basically what they finalized was that the Army would turn over all their fixed-wing aircraft, both transport and attack airplanes, 
to the Air Force. The Air Force would be the service for fixed-wing aircraft to supporting the Army. And in return, the Air Force turned over responsibility for helicopters to the Air to the Army to become the lead service and promised that once they had all the fixed-wing aircraft, they would provide great close support to the Army forever afterwards. He drafted that agreement. It was called the McConnell-Johnson Agreement. We're talking about roughly 1966. Uh, and he drafted in good faith. The chief of staff told him you know, what they had agreed to in the negotiations, these promises and so on. He wrote out the text, and both chiefs signed it. And within less than six months, Avery had figured out there wasn't a chance that the that the Air Force was going to deliver on their promise to deliver adequate and excellent close support. And being as ethical as he was, he felt it was a matter of conscience for him because he had drafted the text that made that promise. I mean, imagine he was ordered to do it. It wasn't really his responsibility at all. But he felt personally involved, and he dedicated the rest of his career to making good on the promise that he thought the Air Force had walked away from. And so he started a campaign hard for building a dedicated, excellent, close air support airplane to make good on the agreement. <laughs> now, being, in fact, a, a very, very intelligent guy, he understood that the Air Force wasn't just going to do that because he said it was a good thing to do, uh, because the whole Air Force, especially at high levels, at uh, flight rank levels, uh, was totally opposed to specialized close support, as they are today. I mean, this is a long-standing tradition. This goes back to the 1930s, right? Because basically the bomber mentality rules the Air Force, and no matter what airplane they flew, all the high-ranking officers who command the Air Force are bomber generals. Right, and this goes all the way back to, well, even, yeah, like the 1920s even, back to the days of Guy Julio Douay and Billy Mitchell and, exactly. and the original air power theorists. Exactly, and that theory was created for budget reasons. That was a theory that allowed you to ask for much bigger budgets. The, the Army Air Corps actually quite rightly thought that they were getting shafted on budget. They were being kept very, very, <clears throat> very, very tight budgets, and... To them, it was obvious that pushing for bombers and saying that air could win the war by itself and didn't need to support the ground was the way, A, to get bigger budgets, and B, to get on, out from under the army <laughs> so they could get their own budgets and stuff. That's, that was true then. That mentality completely dominates the Air Force today. Anyhow, Avery Kay came up with this really brilliant approach to convincing the chief of staff of why he had to do a close support airplane. And what was best about it was it was not only brilliant, but it was true. <laughs> so he and his boss, a two-star named Yudkin, went, went to General McConnell, who was certainly of the bomber mentality, and said, look, we're looking at what the Army is doing. This was like a year or so after the McConnell-Johnson agreement. The Army is starting this enormously complex and expensive helicopter called the Cheyenne, and they're doing it because 
They're not satisfied they were going to put up the close support that we promised. That helicopter, it just so happens, costs 50% more than the most expensive fighter bomber we're buying right now, which happened to be the F-4 at the time. And the Army's going to ask for a thousand of those. And the Congress is very sympathetic. And guess where the money for that thousand very expensive helicopters is going to come from? It's going to come out of the Air Force hide because the Army is going to say we need it because the close, the close support mission is not being fulfilled by the Air Force. And you, General McConnell, are going to go down in history as the chief of staff who lost the close support mission if you don't do something about this helicopter. And that's a very powerful motivation for a, for a four-star <laughs> we, general, chief of staff. In the Pentagon, we used to call that appealing to their patriotism. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, he agreed. He, you know, all chiefs are concerned about their about their place in history. And he agreed. He said, "Fine." He said, "I approve. Let's get let's get a program started." Uh, <clears throat> And, of course, Avery had said the way to do this is what we need to do is present the Congress with an airplane that is much more lethal than the Cheyenne, much more survivable, and costs far less. The chief agreed that those were exactly what was needed to convince the Congress, and so that was Avery's marching order. You couldn't have had better marching orders for designing any kind of airplane than to say it's got to be cheaper than the alternative, and it's got to be more lethal, more survivable, and more effective. Uh, and by the way, those marching orders never exist in modern procurement, because cheaper is not part of the equation. Uh, but in this case, because the mission of the airplane was really not to defeat Soviet armed forces, it was to, <coughs> to defeat an army helicopter, we got these really superb marching orders. So Avery goes off, and like a good staff officer, remember he's sitting in a staff that's totally non-technical people. These people are basically giving political advice to the chief, right? It's called roles and missions. It's a dirty business. And he had no way of shaping the airplane, designing it, setting specifications, setting requirements, going out to industry for proposals, none of that. Nobody on his staff had any idea. So he reached out to the other staffs in the Air Force that do that. And they cut them off at the knees because they were all commanded by three stars who had no interest in close support, who were bomber generals themselves, and and who were not going to go down in history as the guy who lost the close support mission. That was the can that General McConnell had to carry. They weren't going to carry it. Uh, and so they had no interest in sending any budget to Avery and even less interest in sending him a couple of their best officers to help him out. So he was dead in the water. Exactly at that point, uh, I was involved in something, to in something that had nothing to do with the close support thing he was doing. I, I wasn't even aware of what he was doing. I was working for the Secretary of Defense in a small group called Systems Analysis often called the whiz kids and much hated by the services because our job was to advise the Secretary of Defense on the defense budget, the entire defense budget, piece by piece, you know, nuclear, conventional, airplanes, ships, so on. 
and to advise him on where we were spending too much money, where we were spending too little, where the money was being wasted, and we were to do that totally independently of the services. Needless to say, that was a quick road to, to being well hated by the services. And on top of that, there were a bunch of young, very bright guys, and, and unfortunately, plenty of them were pretty arrogant too, that made it worse. Anyhow, I was in the midst of that group, uh, working actually on NATO air. That was my portfolio, was I was supposed to be analyzing how much we were spending on conventional uh, tactical aviation for NATO to fend off a hundred or so Soviet divisions. And I was totally oblivious to what Avery Kay was doing. So I spent a year answering the question from then Secretary McNamara was how much are we spending for tactical air in NATO and is it doing any good? Is it likely to stop the Soviets? You know, nice simple question, of course, kind of an enormous subject, that's why it took a year. <laughs> so I did this meticulous analysis of all the targets it would take to stop the Soviets. They were JCS approved targets and I used JCS approved effectiveness numbers for munitions and calculated how many sorties it would take to take out those targets and what the effect would be on the advance of Soviet armies. And at the end of a year, my conclusion was that we were pretty much wasting our money because at least 80, 90 percent of the money was going to what was then called deep interdiction, which is exactly the same as strategic bombing in World War II, not nuclear, non-conventional strategic bombing. It still ruled the Air Force as it had in World War II. And what that meant was the Air Force operating independently, bombing targets all over Poland, Ukraine, Western Russia to stop these hundred divisions that allegedly were going to pour over Europe and make their way to quickly to the Pyrenees. Right. right. And they were they were talking about bombing things, what, like fuel depots and... And, and bridges and railroads and uh, 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 logistics depots and uh, highways, truck line of communications, all the usual interdiction stuff that we had tried in World War II and that had already failed in World War II. Uh, so my conclusion was we're wasting our money, we're spending far too much on deep interdiction, uh, and it, if it holds up the Russians by three or four weeks, it'll be, it'll be amazing. Because the Russians, of course, have tremendous ability, had and probably still do, to, to cross water obstacles when bridges are down, to fix railroads, to operate on austere roads with trucks, and so, you know, you can blow up all these supposedly significant targets, and the Russians, you know, the Russians would just end run them, as as we found out in Vietnam, where it really happened. Right. So, I put out this paper, and this was a paper that was going to be part of a draft presidential memorandum. This was our official yearly uh, product for the NATO group and every other group in the Whiz Kids. And those, in fact, went to the Secretary of Defense. If he liked them, he would send them to the president. So this was kind of a, a matter of high-level interest in, in service staffs in general, and particularly in the Air Force, because it had a huge impact on the budget. And so I put out this paper. Within 24 hours, I was public enemy number one of the Air Force, because this was threatening the heart of their entire budget, except for their nuclear budget.
Well, and, and it actually goes to the very core, the justification for an independent Air Force. Yes, <laughs> indeed it does. My conclusion in the paper was pretty simple, was we need to reallocate money out of deep interdiction, uh, invest in close support, in real single-purpose uh, close support designed to work right at the point of battle and support the Army and to head off you know, this huge mass of Soviet tanks right where we can really find them because they're shooting. Uh, and in addition to provide enough air-to-air cover, that is specialized air superiority airplanes, to make the job doable. In other words, to keep the MiG-21s, that was the Soviet fighter at the time, off the backs of the close support guys who were stopping the tanks or helping the army stop the tanks with real integrated combined armed tactics. Uh, what happened then, this was interesting, and a tribute again to Avery Kay and his tremendous ethics and guts. Uh, my paper was distributed all over the Air Force so they would know who the enemy was and, and a very large group was commissioned to destroy the paper, to destroy the foundations, also to destroy my reputation and, and typical bureaucracies go after the guy and go after the substance, which was fine by me. I mean, I, <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> no surprises. So Avery sees this paper because he's in a high-level staff that's going to deal with stuff like this. And what does he do? He gets up and he marches down to my office, walks in cold. I didn't know who he was. He didn't know me personally. And uh, this is, of course, totally outside his chain of command. And says, I read your paper, Mr. Spray. And unbeknownst to you, I'm supposed to be designing a close air support airplane that does what you say you want done in your paper. And I'm dead in the water because the Air Force, the entire Air Force is sabotaging my effort. And I badly need help. I don't have any technical people and I'm not getting any. Would you be willing to help? Of course, that was totally illegal for him to ask me to do that. I'm supposed to be working for the Secretary of Defense at arm's length from the Air Force, not designing airplanes for them, right? It was totally illegal for me to agree. But I, how could you not agree with a proposition like that? I mean, I'd put my reputation on the line in my paper and either I was going to back what I said or I wasn't. So, of course, I agreed immediately. And for the next two years, uh, I worked for the Secretary of Defense from 9 until 5 or 6. And from 6 until midnight, I worked for Avery Kay, <laughs> helping him put together sh the shape of the A-10, the weapons, the requirements, the survivability uh, provisions and requirements, the loiter time, all those things that make up a good close support airplane. Before you really got into the the nuts and bolts of what goes into this plane, the the team that he gathered underwent a long process of trying to understand exactly what close air support was. Is that correct? Not quite. Uh, I mean, we did we did go through a process of trying to come to grips with close support. Fortunately, uh, on Avery's staff. There were three guys who were A-1 pilots recently returned from Vietnam and who knew very, very well what close support was. Uh, 
They'd been doing it with by far the best close support airplane of that war. And, and in fact, had had to develop tactics and everything because they had to reinvent close support. There was essentially no knowledge in the Air Force of how to do close support, even though we had done it in World War II and had done it again in Korea. Uh, but the Air Force was so hostile to it that they wiped out all that knowledge. And sure enough, just like in the previous two wars, we had to reinvent how to do it. And these were among the early guys that reinvented it, basically developed tactics. Turned out, you know, there were no tactics manuals for close air support. Imagine that. You go to war, to, you know, with some airplanes dedicated to the Army, damn few, and the airplanes don't have no idea, of, you know, how do we do it? And uh, basically, they, they learned on the job, and they made their own tactics manual. They actually cranked them out <clears throat> on an obsolete device that most listeners won't even know what it is called, a mimeograph machine, <laughs> which preceded the Xerox machine. And one of my most treasured documents is, is that tactics manual that they cranked out, sitting in hooches in, in very steamy, wet places in South Vietnam. Anyhow, these guys were a treasure. Uh, on the other hand, all they knew was Vietnam close support, which was hardly the same as opposing the Soviets. You know, this was basically opposing guerrilla-type infantry, counterinsurgency, and so on. Uh, so we had to sit down and really get ourselves grounded on how to oppose a modern armor-heavy force you know, moving fast on basically a blitzkrieg battlefield. Uh, and our Bible was a book that I assigned everybody on the team to read, which was Stuka Pilot by Colonel Hans Ulrich Rudel, the most decorated pilot of World War II, who, who was the leading actual practitioner of close support, particularly anti-armor close support, because he fought on the Eastern Front uh, for the Germans. His combat record was uh, 3,100 missions. This is when American fighter pilots were being allowed to go home after 100 missions. He had 31 missions. He had over 30 airplanes shot out from under him. He, he personally destroyed and had confirmed by other people 511 Soviet tanks, unbelievable, two divisions worth of tanks, one man. Uh, and this is confirmed, so presumably he banged up a bunch of other tanks too that weren't in great shape after he shot them. Uh, and fortunately for us, he was a meticulous observer of what he did, and he had tremendous memory. Uh, the book really reflects that. And we later interviewed him, actually, for purposes of A-10 tactics, quite a bit later. Uh, but the book was a great foundation for understanding what it takes to oppose heavy, overwhelming armor. That is, uh, armor that really outnumbers you and that's advancing at a good clip against you, uh, which would be exactly the situation that we foresaw if we had to fight the Russians in Europe. Uh, and basically, we put together the airplane on the basis of close support experience in World War II against armor, 
mainly, not entirely, mainly based on Rudel's very, very meticulous and accurate account. Uh, this was in no way self-aggrandizing, and nor was it the account of a technical man. This was the account of a guy who was a tactician, which is why it was so useful. And on the basis of the experience we could put together from the Korean War, which was pretty substantial, there was some really good marine experience in in Korea that was very, very useful to what we were doing. And these guys, the three guys on our team who knew inside out intimately what what close support was like in in South Vietnam and what it took to do it because they were flying the best airplane in the theater for doing it, a really amazingly effective and survivable airplane, uh, the A-1, uh, ancient, designed right at the end of World War II, but surprisingly, surprisingly survivable. You could put a lot of holes in it. Uh, it, was, it had the right speed, it was slow, so it was maneuverable, it could get close to targets. People could separate friend from enemy because they were close enough and they could use their eyeball, which is still true to this day. It's totally essential, despite all the sensors. Uh, and it had amazing loiter time because it had been designed to be a carrier-based fighter that had, to, not fighter, but attack airplane that, that had to put in both substantial distances from a carrier and very substantial time over a beachhead. Uh, because a close support airplane that can't put in at least two hours over the troops isn't worth owning. You know? So, well, and, and explain that a little bit, because I think a lot of people don't don't understand it. I, I was a ground guy in the Marine Corps, so I know exactly why this is why this is uh, because when the 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 aircraft get to go back, but I'm still there on the ground fighting. So you know, can you explain why why they sure. say that that's a that's such an important factor? Yeah, let me go back over the principal things that make a good close support airplane. We can start with loiter because we were just talking about it. If you can't put in a presence over the battlefield that's substantial, and in some cases an all-day presence or all day and all night. Uh, you're not really much help to the troops because modern jet airplanes typically can put in 15 minutes, at most 30 minutes, over the troops. And the enemy knows that. So airplanes show up, they drop a few missiles or do a little strafing. The enemy, you know, takes cover and just waits for the fuel to run out. <laughs> and then your guys are right back in the same trouble they were in before the airplanes arrived. And if you try to do all-day cover, like if you have a big moving operation, it doesn't matter whether you're retreating or advancing. If you're having to move fast and you're afraid of ambushes or something, it's great to have airplanes overhead. But you don't know when you're, obviously you don't know when you're going to get ambushed, so you need them all day long until something happens. You try to do that with airplanes that can only be there 15 or 30 minutes, you're out of an air force in about two days because you got to put up so many sorties. So... Right from the start, we said this airplane had to have two to four hours over the troops. Anything less would be unacceptable. Right from the start, we said, <clears throat> if the airplane is not really maneuverable at slow speed with a full bomb load, and by slow speed, we were very specific because we worked out the geometry of what it takes 
to get your eyeballs on a tank and to keep him in sight as you come around to attack. Uh, slow speed meant between 200 and 350 knots. Anything above 350 knots is irrelevant. That's a region where modern jet fighters can barely fly. You know, they can't do much maneuvering there with a bomb load. They're basically struggling. And that means that they have to attack at 450 or knots or so, maybe down to 400. If they're lucky enough to see a tank at that speed, which is unusual, that's too fast to really detect, you know, even halfway camouflage targets, they're going to lose sight of them before they come around because it's going to take them a mile of turn radius to come back in and, uh, and it reattack. And you lose sight of a tank easily at well under a quarter mile. So if you can't stay within a quarter mile of a tank uh, or any other camouflaged object, you know, APC, command headquarters, uh, column of trucks, if you can't stay within a quarter mile or better at a speed at which you can still maneuver and duck ground fire and duck shoulder-fired missiles, uh, you're not in the close support business. You know. Uh, and of course, associated with that, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why that that speed regime is the crucial regime and operating faster than that puts you out of business. Another one is most places in the world have pretty bad weather for flying. We happen to be lucky for the last 15, 20 years, we're flying in places where for the most part, the cloud cover isn't very low or non-existent. And the sandstorms aren't too often, so it's fairly clear weather. So the jets, the jets have ideal, you know, attack circumstances from the weather point of view. But every other place in the world, you know, South Vietnam, Europe especially, South America, every other place in the world has a lot of clouds, and they tend to hang low, like a thousand feet off the deck or something. There's no way that jet fighters can operate a thousand feet off the deck and maneuver and do close support. They just they're too fast. They're going to run into something. Uh, so that and we did a lot of weather analysis, by the way, as we did a lot of this historical analysis of what it took to attack tanks and machine gun nests and bunkers and command headquarters. We did the same for weather in order to again confirm that we were in the right speed regime. Uh, in addition, once you're in there close, close enough that you can find the targets, close enough that you can tell whether they're friendly or enemy, which is of overwhelming importance. I mean, people don't even begin to understand how important that is. Because just, you know, one accident a month destroys the confidence of the troops and you can't work together anymore. If you can't work together, if you can't plan joint tactics and really arrange to use the strengths of what the guy on the ground can see and what the guy in the air can see, you're not doing close support. You're, it's just not possible. So you must, must, must be able to securely separate friend from enemy. And there are no set of sensors, uh, IR cameras, video cameras, whatever, that can reliably do that from 15,000 feet. And basically that's where the jets have to operate, particularly if there's weather. You understand if you have an airplane that's highly maneuverable at slow speeds and can get close enough to do all these things we need to do, it's going to get shot at. And shot at heavily, and I don't mean by specialized weapons, 
because over a moving battlefield, you don't have any heavy missiles or heavy anti-aircraft. Nobody wants to drag that stuff when the division orders are you got to march 20 miles a day. But there's a lot of weapons that can shoot <clears throat> at altitudes of, say, up to 5,000 feet. Uh, machine guns for the Soviets, 23 millimeter small cannons. Uh, these are all weapons very useful to the guy on the ground. He's going to drag them along because he can use them, and he can use them to shoot at airplanes if they show up. And, of course, shoulder-fired infrared missiles, which are everywhere and which infantry can now use pretty readily. Uh, so that's what you're really going to face, is a lot of that. And you're going to get hit every once in a while, maybe pretty often. And you need an airplane that can get hit and, and get home because the pilot has to have the confidence, just like the guy on the ground, that he's being really well protected. People are looking out for him, and just because he got hit by a machine gun bullet doesn't mean that his fuel tank will explode, and, you know, and that'll be the end of that. So we laid on to the airplane the most stringent set of survivability requirements ever laid on any U.S. airplane, any world airplane, I should say, uh, and we researched the history of what knocks airplanes down. There are pretty good statistics about all the causes of aircraft loss from World War II and Korea and Vietnam. And it's the same in every war. 80-90% are lost due to either fire, explosion, or loss of control. So we focused there first. Uh, you know, people think Survivability, oh, we got to put a lot of armor on the airplane right away. That's not the place to start. The place to start is with fire and with control systems that when one gets shot out, there's another two to back it up. And the backup systems have to be survivable. That is not made out of thin hydraulic pipes or something, but cable-type systems that are much harder to shoot up with, with bullets and explosive fragments. So we laid on this super stringent set of requirements that drove the designers crazy. <laughs> I mean, just give you one simple example. We demanded that if the engines are in the fuselage, no fuel in the fuselage. If the engines are in the wing, no fuel in the wing. For a very simple reason, is engines do get hit. They will most certainly come apart when they're hit. They will almost undoubtedly, especially if they're jet engines or turbine engines, you know, They'll put out flame and bingo, the fuel's on fire. A modern jet fighter, every modern jet fighter is basically a blowtorch surrounded by fuel. So there is no modern jet fighter, high-speed jet fighter, that's survivable to even a rifle bullet. Because the rifle bullet go right through that thin aluminum or composite skin into the engine, bingo, the fan comes apart, out comes flame. And what does the flame meet? The fuel tank that's wrapped around the engine. <clears throat> so... That's hopeless. Of course, designers hated this requirement that you couldn't put the fuel where the engine is because kind of the whole, the whole emphasis of good airplane design, low drag and so on, is to put fuel anywhere where there's a little space. Mm -hmm. right? So we were telling them to waste a whole bunch of space because we wanted our pilots to get home. And, and we, had to, we had to push it pretty hard because they sure didn't want to do it that way. And in fact, the final A-10 that came out has a brilliant solution to that. It's got the engines outside the fuselage on pylons. And so it's neither near fuel, fuel in the fuselage, nor is it near fuel 
in the wings because the engines are aft and out on pylons. And a lot of people have come home because of that who wouldn't have come home. I've gotten personal messages from guys. Guys have told me, my family thanks you, you know, because one of their engines blew up right. and the airplane came home. Right, and there are pictures of that online where you can see one of the engine nacelles on the A-10 completely shot up because it was hit by a surface-to-air missile, but the plane was sitting there on the ground because it had landed. Exactly, exactly. And that <clears throat> that was crucial. Now, we did, we did put armor to protect the pilot because, you know, the cockpit can get shot up and there's a very... It's kind of one of the most famous features of the A-10 is that it's got this 1,100-pound titanium bathtub that the pilot is sitting in and, and a really thick armored windshield in front of him, which makes him almost completely immune to most small arms fire. He's certainly immune to rifle fire and, uh, and fire up to 50 caliber and pretty immune even to explosive shells like 20 and 23 millimeter. The most crucial survivability features are not things that are obvious until you look at the design of the airplane and you look at what we force the designers to do. Then the last thing that's crucial for a close air support airplane, and this one really came through from Rudel, and thank God he was a tactician and an operational guy and not a technical guy, because he keeps on talking in his book about how they're constantly finding themselves. His squadron, he was a squadron leader, uh, specifically with the anti-armor mission because he had one of the few squadrons that had 37 millimeter cannons on it. He keeps on talking about how almost invariably the airplanes would be in the wrong place, you know, because the Russians would attack by surprise somewhere, you know, 200 miles away, overwhelm the local troops. The local troops would be screaming for air support and he's sitting in a field, you know, where the Russians have just pulled back or something. And so he's constantly moving this squadron <clears throat> under very emergency conditions, you know, getting a call and saying, we need you tomorrow morning. And they moved. They were able to do that. The airplane was simple enough, rugged enough, maintainable enough, and the organization of his squadron was such that they could pick up, move by truck all night, fly the airplanes in, and be operating the next morning. It's crucial to have an airplane that can do that. No jet fighter that we own can do that. There's not a single jet fighter we own that you can move a squadron overnight. You're lucky if you move a squadron and you're flying three or four days later. And why, and why is that? A, because they're too complicated. They've got all kinds of electronics. They've got all kinds of support equipment they have to drag along to diagnose the airplane. Uh, I mean, it's a classic. The, the, every jet fighter that we have has that problem. The F-35 has that problem to an unbelievable degree. Not only do you have to drag the airplane, <laughs> You have to drag a, a whole set of trailers full of computers, right? <laughs> that the first version wasn't even deployable at all. Now they're finally somewhat deployable. You're talking about thousands of pounds of trailers that you got to move, and then you got to set them up, and then you got to load the data into the airplane and out of the airplane. It turns out, it turns out to fully load the mission data into an F-35 takes 24 hours. You know, think about that when people are screaming to have you, you know, to have you attack at dawn tomorrow and you're sitting there loading data in for 24 hours, you know, in a trailer full of computers that it took you three days to move to the location. So we put a lot of emphasis, although I must say, if I was doing it again today, I'd put even more emphasis on this idea of the mobility of the entire squadron and its ability 
within less than 24 hours to be 200 miles away at a new airfield that's not an airfield. It's just a cow pasture or a dirt road, you know, or some flat piece of ground. Uh, the A-10 was designed to be able to operate off, off pastures and dirt roads and so on, but I would put even more emphasis on that today. Uh, Right, but that's something that you have to design from the very beginning with an aircraft. It's not something that could be an afterthought. There's no way you can add huge wheels to a jet fighter and a really strong hydraulic shock absorber to absorb the shock of, you know, of traveling over rocks and bumps in in a gravel road, you know, that hasn't been maintained for 10 years, right? Uh, and then the last thing, of course, it's not last in priority, uh, but it's the one in a way that's most obvious, which is why I'm putting it last, is when you arrive, you got to be able to kill what's there. you got to be able to shoot effectively a huge range of targets because, you know, that's what tac tactical warfare isn't just about tanks or just about machine gun nests. It's about a huge range of targets, all of which, you know, combined are killing your guys. So you're talking about artillery, uh, forward observer posts, bunkers, command APCs, regular infantry APCs, very well sandbagged machine gun positions, ambush type positions, uh, the whole range. And you have to have weapons to deal with all of it. And, ba and they basically all need to be on the airplane because you don't know what you're going to run into. If you knew what you were going to run into, they probably wouldn't need you. <laughs> right. And the current way we plan with uh, the air tasking order, the 72-hour the cycle where we have to plan, uh, we think we're going to be fighting these guys three days from now in this position. So make sure that you're loaded for bear for that. And then, of course, the enemy's going to change their plans yeah, of on course, us in that time. Of course. So what, what all that boils down to is you have to have weapons that can address that huge range of targets. And we sat down and we analyzed that. And by the way, contrary to what a lot of the history says that we simply designed the A-10 to stop uh, tanks, Soviet tanks at the Fulda Gap, that's, that's hogwash. We designed it to stop guys in pajamas carrying rifles all the way up to, you know, heavy armored divisions attacking you know, in the desert, attacking at the Fulda Gap, attacking, you know, in wet, marshy terrain, all of that. Uh, and it turned out the answer to what you needed was relatively simple because it turned out that missiles simply couldn't do the job back then. And by the way, even though they've improved tremendously and do more jobs today than they did then, they still can't do a very large portion of the close support job, uh, both because the sensors aren't discriminating enough and because camouflage defeats a lot of the sensors. I mean, even smoke defeats a lot of the sensors, like lasers and electro-optical. Every time we went through this list of targets, it was obvious the number one weapon you had to have on hand was a, a highly lethal, relatively large caliber cannon and something hopefully much better than Colonel Rudel was able to use. Colonel Rudel had a large caliber cannon, 37 millimeter, very low rate of fire. He basically, and this is amazing when you think about the 511 tanks he shot, 
he basically got two shots per pass, one out of each pod on the wingtip because the rate of fire of the gun was so slow. And with two shots per pass, this guy bagged 511 <laughs> tanks. Uh, unbelievable. We, we sat down once, once we realized that the gun was the center of the ordnance load. It would address, you know, sandbagged machine gun positions. It would address APCs. It would kill any tank in the world if you could fire from, the, from above and behind or from the sides, because no tank in the world has much more than an inch and a quarter armor there, even to this day, M1 included. They're all very vulnerable to airplanes, as long as you don't try to attack them frontally. You know, that's, airplanes can do that. That's why they're maneuverable. <laughs> uh, so right from, the, right from the tank down to the rifleman, the one weapon that could handle across that whole array and be uncountermeasurable, right? That is, you couldn't defeat it with jamming, you know, with, with camouflage, with smoke and so on, assuming that the pilot can get in close enough to see, you can kill the target. Right, because if he can see it, yeah. he, can, he can pull a trigger. And, and so we designed this breakthrough weapon the most lethal gun that's ever been put on an airplane, which was a very high velocity 30 millimeter, smaller than Rudel's 37, but way higher velocity. And the thing that put it across the top from the point of view of armor and APCs was the fact that we went to an all new penetrator made out of depleted uranium, that is of non-radioactive uranium, that happens to act just like magnesium, except it's so heavy it can punch through armor. That is, it bursts into flame when it hits a tank, and so you get almost guaranteed burning of the tank or explosion of the ammunition. And in fact, later in the program when we started producing the gun and the ammo, we demonstrated against real Soviet tanks, against you know rather large, almost a small tank army out in the desert, that we were getting much higher kill percentages than any missile. Hmm. Uh, but the beautiful thing was at the same time, we had a weapon that could go after guys, you know, firing from the edge of a rice paddy or firing from behind a sand dune, right? So it was, once we realized that, it didn't take us a long time, in part because of these eight A-1 pilots from Vietnam who had said, you know, the 20 millimeter cannons on the A-1 were by far the most important weapon they had. And of course, those couldn't shoot tanks and stuff, but they were still, they covered almost all the targets they needed then. Uh, once we realized how important the gun was, basically the airplane was designed around the gun. You know, what really shaped the airplane was that you had to have this huge gun, which physically, if you've ever seen photographs of it, it's about it's a little bigger than a Volkswagen Beetle. Mm -hmm. You wrap an airplane around that, then you have to have everything we just said, engines that aren't near the fuel, great big wings so that you can turn hard. Uh, a lot of ordnance pylons, we have 11 on the, on the A-10 more than any jet, just so you can carry a big variety of other weapons besides the gun. You know, uh, Those are basically the factors that that shaped the airplane. And, and to do that, you know, we really went through hundreds of designs. We worked very closely with contractors once they were convinced we were serious and that we really meant it about survivability and loiter and all that, which it took a while to convince them. 
Uh, and we got hundreds of designs that we traded off because all these factors are kind of pulling and pushing in opposite direction. You want a lot of loiter time? Well, that's going to hurt your maneuverability because you've got to carry a lot of gas. You want a lot of maneuverability? That takes a huge wing. Well, you know, there goes, there goes your loiter time. You know, you want a lot of acceleration so you can accelerate out of the fire zone. Well, you're going to have to make the wing smaller and carry less gas. So it took a while to get a really balanced airplane. And, and as I said, we leaned very heavily on every piece of combat experience we could, we could get to make those, those trade-offs and judgments. And fortunately, in part because we had these A-1 pilots, we came up with a pretty sensible airplane. That took that process. We that took, process took us about a year. Then, of course, came all the bureaucratic fights. We 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 built the bureaucratically required concept formulation package. Had to get it approved all the way up to the chief of staff of the Air Force, and and the secretary of the Air Force. That was another battle, because obviously all these bureaucracies that hadn't wanted the airplane in the first place. We're pretty busy trying to sabotage what we were doing. And then, of course, came the problem of getting the money. And as, as it happened all along, I mean, basically, you can view this whole airplane evolution as a series of very fortunate accidents, you know, like the accident that Avery Kay was such an ethical guy and really felt strongly. The accident that I happened to write a study that said deep interdiction wasn't so hot and that Avery had the guts to come ask me to do it. Uh, you know, the next series of really fortunate accidents had to do with how to get the money to build it. The next thing that required a very fortunate accident indeed was how to get the money to build the airplane. Because obviously, if we were going to go in for a bunch of money, every three-star in the Air Force would be yelling about how they couldn't afford to do it. <clears throat> Fortunately, right at this point, uh, there was a growing, a growing kind of fad in the Pentagon, more than a fad, for doing more prototypes, heavily fueled by a new guy on board, Dave Packard, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense, who was basically running the inside of the Pentagon. Uh, his boss was an ex-congressman, Mel Laird, who wasn't so interested in running the Pentagon. He was mainly interested in getting us out of Vietnam, actually. Uh, and Packard was a classic engineer. He happened to be an electrical engineer who'd started a huge company, Hewlett Packard, in his garage. And he was hard over advocate of prototyping stuff based on hard experience. And uh, fortunately pushed that hard and made budgets available. And so, because the, we had, right from the start, as part of our briefings for concept formulation, uh, we had insisted, I felt very strongly about this, the airplane had to be a prototype program, the prototype had to be tested in a combat realistic scenario, and then I threw in something that was a really hard pill to swallow for standard Air Force procurement guy. It had to be competitively procured. That is, you had to procure two sets of prototypes, and you had to fly them in a really combat-realistic test, not just engineering 
instruments, stopwatches, how fast does it go, how long does it, you know, how long does it loiter and so on. But we, we actually designed a fly-off that was like an operational test. We demanded that the prototypes had to be armed, they had to be able to drop bombs and shoot guns. Now, the gun was still in development. We couldn't shoot the 30 millimeter because uh, it was basically an all-new gun. Uh, so we, we settled for 20 millimeter on board the airplane, which existed and which would test the strafing accuracy and the close-in maneuverability of the airplane and all that. Uh, so it was a live fire test. We actually dropped bombs, checked the accuracy of the bomb drops, strafe, checked the accuracy of the strafing. And then the final kicker, <laughs> boy, did this cause a fight, uh, was we demanded that the airplane had to be shot at with Russian weapons to see whether it would catch fire, blow up, fall apart. Oh my God, was that a fight? Because there was a whole survivability bureaucracy that wanted to do all that by computer simulation. And those computer simulations weren't worth the powder to blow them to hell because they had no relation to reality. And they still don't to this day. You know, predicting fire, structural failure, and so on under ballistic impact is, you know, there's only one way to do it, it's to shoot. <laughs> and so we demanded that in addition to two prototypes from every contractor, there had to be a third prototype, which they could deliver in pieces, which would be shot at with real Russian weapons, not surrogate weapons. This whole survivability community loves to use surrogate weapons because they can kind of wicker the outcome depending on how they tailor the weapon. We said, no, these have to be black market bought Russian weapons coming actually out of satellite countries and out of Russia, and we'll shoot at the wing of the airplane and the fuselage, and we'll see whose airplane burns less, blows up less, or falls apart less. Unbelievable fight. <laughs> <laughs> That's worth a whole separate story how that went. Anyhow, uh, for several of these fights, one of the fights was about the depleted uranium, Another fight was about shooting at pieces of the airplane instead of computer modeling. I had to go to the Secretary of the Air Force. Fortunately, he was a very decent guy. He was quite sympathetic to us, unusually, and not, not particularly inclined towards the big money, big fighter programs. Uh, this guy named McLucas. Uh, and he backed us. He, you know, he rammed the, the live fire survivability testing of the A-10 right down the throats of the Wright-Patterson bureaucracy that hated it. The prototype fly-off ground rules were part of what we sent out to the industry. This was part of the requirement of the airplane. The requirements were the technical requirements for loiter and speed and maneuverability. You got to deliver in one year, you know, very tight time schedule. When you, after you deliver, here's what you're going to face. This is what the airplane is going to have to do to beat your competitor, right? So everybody knew what the ground rules were. This was this had never been done before. There'd never been a competitive fly-off in the Air Force. They'd had plenty of prototypes, but they all flew by themselves and were measured with stopwatches and stuff. And then people decided, yeah, I like this one. It has a nice pointy nose and the stopwatch reads well. You know, so we'll pick that one. Right, so th this was a very different kettle of fish. And of course, the bureaucracy hated it because there was no way of telling which one would win, you know? And of course, that's, you know, bureaucracies love to be able to put their thumb on the scale and tilt it towards the airplane they like. 
you know, and and I have to tell you, by the way, I, you know, the airplanes that flew off were the the YF nine, or the A nine, I should say, the YA nine, and the YA ten. So that was Northrop was the YA nine. It was Fairchild Republic. Fairchild. It was Republic designed the airplane. Fairchild bought the company, so it was a Fairchild Republic. Was the YA ten and. For aerodynamic reasons, I thought the YA-9 was kind of the nicer design, although it was clear it wasn't quite as survivable as the other one. But sure enough, after the fly-off, the A-10 won. It was a clear winner. It had better survivability. It had better accuracy in the bombing and strafing tests. And the maneuverability was perfectly adequate. Loiter time was good, was actually better than the Northrop airplane, because the Northrop prototype went overweight, uh, badly overweight. And so they won, and that's why you, that's why you pay, pay for prototype competitions, is so you'll get surprises, so the best man wins, even though you didn't predict who was the best man. I predicted wrong, and the, the test proved me wrong, and I was delighted to see that there was clear distinction and the better airplane won. Were you the only one who was surprised by that? No, there were lots of other people, lots of other, you know, engineering-oriented people like me were very attracted to the nice aerodynamic design of the YA-9. There's still people to this day that defend it. I don't defend it. It lost the competition. Tough luck. Interesting. Well, now this whole process, though, was very different from not only what came before, but unfortunately what came after, too, right? The only other airplane that was procured the same way, for reasons that are obvious, was the was the, the F-16. That was the YF-16 versus the YF-17, which was exactly the same thing. It was a combat-type fly-off with real fighter pilots, real air-to-air combat, weapons that could shoot, all that. And, of course, the reason that was, it was our same group of guys who worked on the A-10, that is, the fighter mafia-type guys, sat down. I mean, somewhat different cast of characters, but of the same mindset. Uh, And we designed the F-16 the same. No airplane since then has been procured that way. No airplane before was ever procured that way. You know, they pretended on the F-22 to have a competitive fly-off. There was a total sham. And they had an even worse sham for the F-35. You know, they flew airplanes whose blueprints they then tore up and designed new airplanes after they had the so-called fly-off. So, you know, <laughs> what what kind of a fly-off is that? You fly off two prototypes that are basically unrelated, except the general shape looks the same, to the airplane you later decide to build. Yes, much later. Cause much that, later. Because yeah. the fly-off for the, for the F-35 happened, what, in the late 1990s, right? Yeah, it happened, I think, uh, the, it happened right around 2000. I think by the end of 2000, they had a decision. Sure. They well, the, yeah, the contract was decision. And then they tore up the blueprints, and Lockheed sat down and designed a new airplane. And it's a new airplane that basically doesn't work. Right, right. And you know, here we are. And is much more complicated than the airplane that was flown. It's also heavier and larger. And, you know, and we're still trying to fix it because we never did test it. You know, and we're still not testing it correctly. Right. And now, now the Pentagon has shut off the money for continuing the development testing that's so crucial to trying to fix it. You know, they're just going to pretend it's not a problem and send it off to operational tests where more things will break and more expense will be incurred 
to make new airplanes, to make old airplanes halfway suitable for combat. And there'll be a whole bunch of airplanes that will never go to combat because you can't fix them. Well, that's it for this time. You can learn more about the A-10 and our efforts to keep it flying until a suitable replacement is available, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can also follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.